Daniel chapter 2. All right. I want to, as we kind of introduce this, one of the things, one of the key themes or consistent themes that we saw that we identified in Daniel is uh, sovereignty and providence. And so I want to take just a moment and kind of define providence. Uh, basically, providence is God's sustaining and guiding human history for his glory and purpose. Um, it inherently contains the idea that it is for our benefit as well. So this morning, is let, let's look just briefly at two verses in Daniel chapter 1 before we kind of make some application, but let's, let's look in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, speaking of Daniel and Hananiah, Nazariah, and Mishael, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Um, I put verse 21 down. Don't know why, but I did. No, I do remember why. Excuse me. And Daniel continued until the first, rate, first year of King Cyrus. Daniel's ability to interpret visions and dreams is a providence consistent throughout, whether it's with Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's with uh, those kings yet to come. It becomes a key part of God's providence uh, and their existence there in Babylon. Now, let's read a few verses in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. That's the language. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Then answered again, they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants a dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that thou would gain the time, or in other words, that they are buying time. That's, that's what he's saying. Because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will make not, but if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak unto me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. So we have this scene in that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he calls the uh, wise men, the, the Chaldeans, uh, to come and interpret this dream for him. And not only does he want them to interpret the dream, he wants them to tell him what the dream was. He says, it is gone from me. Now, there's two lines of thought here. One is that it's completely gone, and Nebuchadnezzar can't remember it at all, but it's still troubling to him. The other is that he has this fuzzy sense. We kind of, and we've all been there, right? I kind of remember this dream, but I don't really remember that dream. 
One way or the other, he withholds that from them so that he has, so he can, he, for him, it's an indicator of whether or not he can trust in the interpretation. And scholars are somewhat divided as to why he would hold that back, but those are the two things that they throw out there. Uh, the language can kind of be interpreted either way. So both are fair game, I suppose. But he says, you're stalling for time. You want to gain the time. And, and all the while you're doing that, you're just looking to put something together that will appease me. That's basically what he says in verse 9. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He asked for the interpretation of it, as well as tell me what the dream was. And all of the guys, all of the, uh, the Chaldeans, uh, that have been called, they, they agree that, hey, we, nobody can do this. Right? Tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation of it. This is God's providence, right? I mean, he's called Daniel. He's given him the ability to interpret visions and dreams. That is the specific mention in Daniel 1.17. God is doing something here, and there's no coincidence that this would be how it all shakes out. Up to this point, in between these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have about a year's passage of time. And what we discover is that Daniel, at this point, is not a big player in Babylon. Though he and his uh, three friends have been found to be ten times wiser than all of the wise men and the astrologers and the magicians, they're, they're not key players as of yet. But this is something that God is using to establish them and to change that very thing. Now, from our perspective, we look at providence and we, we experience it in the same way that Daniel does. We know that God is sustaining us and that he's guiding human history for his glory and purpose. We also know that as a result of that, we reap the best that God has for us. Turn with me to Romans 28. In Romans 28, we, we often, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 28. There's not that many chapters in Romans, guys. Romans 8, 28 through 33. And we go to these passages and we look at them from the perspective and we quote them often, verse 31 in particular, right? Knowing that everything's working together for our good. But what we have to do is phrase, we have to capture that within the context that is it intended and that God is providentially operating, that he is moving on our behalf to bring about those things. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What, shall we say, what then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And in my opinion, that's a sort of a summary statement. If everything is working for our good, and, and God is providentially sustaining and guiding you and I, and the world around us, human history, to bring about his glory and his purpose, that no matter what comes our way, we know that it is the absolute best that God has for us. As hard as it may be, or as good as it may be, none all of the same. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He, uh, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. We have this assurance that God is for us. We have this confirmation of, uh, for lack of better terms, direct providence, personal providence, in that God is moving, orchestrating everything that we experience. Now, he doesn't change how we may respond to it. He doesn't change what decision we may or may not make. We have agency. We're not robots. There's a balance to be struck there. But nonetheless, God is bringing those things to pass providentially for his will and for his purpose, for his glory. And we receive the benefit of those things, knowing that God is on our side and not against us. So no matter how it shakes out, so to speak, good or bad, he is for us. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. We're going to look at a few verses here. There's a couple of ways that we see providence shake out in these verses. Philippians 1, verses 15 through 26. Paul is here speaking. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, verse 18, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Just pause there for a moment. Don't miss what Paul is saying. There are those who are preaching the gospel as he is, sincerely and in love. There are those true believers who are taking the Great Commission and sharing the gospel with the world. They have the same intent as God does, to see people saved, to see them born again. But there are also those who are preaching the gospel simply to add burden to Paul. Those who have taken up the mantle uh, so that as the spread of the gospel comes, the affliction that Paul receives, the punishment that he is looking toward, so to speak, increases. They're not sincere. They don't believe it. They're not part of, uh, part of the body of Christ, but they're preaching it anyway. And what does Paul say? He says, I rejoice. Why? Because no matter why it's being preached, he says, it's being preached. God in his providence is sustaining and guiding, using all of this to the benefit of those who would hear the gospel. Whether it's preached sincerely or whether it's preached insincerely. for his glory, and for his purpose. Verse 19, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, 
whether it be life or by death. So here's Paul, and he says, listen, it, it, it doesn't matter what happens to me. The providence of God to bring about the preservation of my life or to bring about my death or to allow it, whatever, he says, to the glory of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet that I shall choose what I shall choose, I want not. Paul says, I don't know what I would choose. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your, joy, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ, for by, for by me, for, my, for me, by my coming to you again. Paul is torn. He knows that to be with Christ is exactly that, to be with Christ. And he says it is better, but he... But he says, nevertheless, in, in many respects, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He's acknowledging the providence of God, and he's acknowledging his submission to that providence, whatever it may bring. Whether it brings about his death, which is, in his opinion, deliverance into the presence of God, or whether it's bringing about the preservation of his life and the ability to continue to serve the Lord in the capacity that he's been called. His submission to that providence, his yielded heart toward whatever God has for him. Okay, so we have this assurance that God is provident, that he is uh, sustaining and guiding human history for his glory and his purpose, that we reap the benefit of it. That no matter what happens, good, bad, seemingly indifferent, that God is for us, therefore who can be against us? And that's a comforting thought in, in times that we live in where things seem to be going sideways. We have to have this biblical perspective. We have to realize that this is what God has. And just as Paul, as, as grievous as it may sound to us, just as Paul looks forward to whatever God may call him to, to continue to be in bondage and serve the Lord in that capacity to to share the gospel with those around him, or to be delivered from it in, in death directly into the presence of Christ. Either one, from our perspective, seems somewhat bad. But Paul rejoices, and he's thankful that he has that the providence of God is at play. And it makes me think, where, where do I find myself? Where is my heart in regard to in regard to what God has called me to, in regard to the providence that he has exercised in my life and in my family and in the circumstances that I find myself in. Do I rejoice? Do I trust in the, in the providence that God has exercised in the things that he has brought to pass, that he has allowed, knowing that he is for me and that God is bringing about in me conformity to the image of Christ? Or am I woe is me? I wish this or I wish that. Here's Daniel. And he, 
experiences the direct providence of God, giving him the ability to interpret visions and dreams. And he does nothing with it for an entire year. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that nobody knows. And if nobody knows it, nobody can interpret it. But Daniel knows with certainty that God has given this ability to him. He experiences the direct providence of God. And ultimately, in the very beginning, he is faced with imminent death. Why? Because he's one of the wise men. He's one that is going to be, as we find, he's going to be put to death if they can't give this dream, right? That's verse 5. The king answered, this is the thing that has gone for me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. And he reiterates that in verse 9. If you don't make that dream known to me and the interpretation, there's only one decree for you, that one that I just gave you in verse 5. This is where Daniel finds himself. In many respects, just like Paul, here's the providence of God bringing him to certain death unless God moves. Talk about dreams for just a moment. Let's read the first two verses in Daniel chapter 2. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, which wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now, it was common occurrence to get, for God to speak through dreams in the Old Testament. This was, this was part of how he interacted with the nation of Israel. Um, I mean, he specifically in Daniel 1.17 gives him the ability to interpret those. Uh, turn with me to Genesis. We're just going to look at a few instances where this is the case. Uh, Genesis chapter 20. It is not obviously exclusively the way that God uh, dealt with his people, not by any means, but it is a way. In fact, it was common enough in that day that it was ascribed to pagan gods. So this would be how they would inter this would have be how they would interact, excuse me, with their people. And that's exactly, in some respects, what's what's happening here. And we'll get to that as we as we move forward this morning. Okay, Genesis chapter 20. Verses 3 through 7. Now, just to give you some, some background here, Abraham and his family has come into the lands of Abimelech, right? And Abimelech sees Sarah, who's this beautiful woman, and he takes her to be his wife. And this, he has this dream. God interacts with him through this dream to preserve and to protect Sarah, who Abraham should have been protecting but was deceitful. Uh, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, She is my sister. And she even her, she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I not thee to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, 
for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live, and if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, and all that are thine. So God interacts with Abimelech, this, this king. He's not, he's not of Israel. He's, well, Israel doesn't exist yet. This is Abraham and Sarah, right? This, they're the progenitors of that entire nation. And Abraham deceives him, and Sarah participates in that deception. It's only half deceptive, but it is deceptive nonetheless. And God spares Abimelech by giving him this dream before anything can come to pass between the two of them. But here he is. He interacts with him in a dream. Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31, verse 11. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am, or here am I. Uh, this is where Jacob has wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Um, nope, nope, take it back. This is not where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. This is where he's going to leave. Uh, this is where God tells Jacob to take the diseased animals, and that's how he builds his flock. That's how he builds his wealth. God miraculously intervenes, but he deals with him. He interacts with him initially in a dream. Uh, Genesis 37, uh, verses 5 and 6. This is speaking about Joseph. Joseph had more than one dream. Not only that, but Joseph interpreted dreams. That's how he was brought into the presence of Pharaoh. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream as well and was elevated to the position is the same or very similar providence exercised in Joseph's life as was exercised in Daniel's. But in Genesis 37, 5 and 6, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. These are clearly dreams that God is giving. And we look back and we see what happens, uh, how the sheaves bow down and, and all of those things. And that actually happens with Joseph's brothers as they bow down before him while he's head second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. So God deals with them. In Genesis 41, uh, we read about Pharaoh and his dream and Joseph interpreting that dream. Again, God dealing, interacting through the dreams of people that he has given them. Now, uh, one more example in 1 Kings chapter 3. In verse 5, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. This is where Solomon asks for wisdom that he might govern the people well. And God grants him that wisdom. But his initial interaction with Solomon is in a dream. Okay, So here, it's not uncommon in the Old Testament for this to happen. And this is just a smattering of things uh, that God interacts with his people through dreams. Now, I say all that, and I want to continue that discussion because we need to have some words of warning. There are some things that we need to consider Today, in regard to dreams, uh, and I'll just throw this out there, God could still speak to us through dreams, and we're going to kind of 
look at that just a little bit, but, but there are some things that we need to be very careful of. Okay, number one, let's go to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12. <clears throat> and and there's obviously there's some context here but for the sake of our discussion the context is very similar uh to where we're going to go in deuteronomy so uh and he said hear now my words this is the lord speaking as he comes down in the pillar of cloud there in the tabernacle uh, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. Now, just consider that statement. God says, listen, this is how I'm going to interact with the prophets. I'm going to speak to them in visions and in dreams. Then if we turn to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in this chapter, God gives in many respects, well, he gives a promise of a prophet, but he also gives some characteristics and some qualifications of prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, by word of warning in many respects to you and I, he says, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. So here's the thing, right? As we're, as we're looking at words of warning, God said, I'm going to deal with my prophets. I'm going to speak to them by visions and dreams. The prophet that presumes to speak in God's name, who God has not given him a word to speak, is going to be put to death. Revelation 22 Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto the things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God gives a very strict warning to say, listen, you'll be put to death if you speak in my name, those things which I have not spoken, or if you speak in the name of false gods, presenting yourself as a prophet when you're not. And he says, listen, don't add to the book. Don't take away from the book. In other words, when God says, listen, this is what I've given you, this is the revelation, speaking of Scripture itself, the Word of God, in its fullness, in its completeness, and he says, don't take away from it, don't add to it, it doesn't matter if you had a dream or not, it's not new revelation. Right? For me to say, listen, I had this dream, this is what God said, and it's somehow being different or or abrogating the word of God, that's not from God. We have to be careful. We have to be very watchful 
Because not every dream is going to be from God. It might just have been some spicy sauce or who knows what, but for whatever reason, we have a dream and we can't just attribute it to God. We have to be careful as we look at things. And I give the word of warning because I do believe that God would still speak in dreams today, potentially. We have another, we have other places to go as we progress here. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he says, try the spirits to see whether they be from God or whether they're not from God. Right? Everything that would confess Jesus Christ as Lord is from God, and everything that doesn't is Antichrist, is not from him, is against Christ. 1 John 4, 1 and 2. Right? So if we're gonna if we're, we're gonna have these dreams and visions and these things, if this happens, what do we do with it? Well, we have to try it and see where it stands. In 2 Peter chapter 2, turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. We have another, another word of caution, uh, confirmatory, but also a word of caution. And he says, for when they speak great, 2 Peter, maybe it's 1 Peter. No, it is the wrong reference. The reference that I intended to have is the one where he talks about um, a more sure word of prophecy. And Peter is speaking. He says, listen, we have this testimony from God himself. When we saw Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we have the witness of Moses and Elijah there. He says, but we, the church, have a more sure or a more complete, a more trustworthy word of prophecy, word of revelation. And he's speaking of the word of God. No prophecy, he says, no inspirational speech is given by private interpretation. In other words, what we have here in Scripture, God is not going to abrogate or put aside or change by giving a word to one person. Does that make sense? That we have the same word of warning here. God is not changing His word because you had a dream. He's not going to do that. And He tells us He's not going to do that. Apologize for the wrong reference. So words of warning, God has in the past spoken through dreams. I believe he can still today. We have to be careful with that. And I want to go to Joel chapter 2, because this is where people go. This is the proof text, if you will, for people in regard to dreams and, and those things. We have to look at it in its totality because... Uh, the Word of God deals with it directly, but from Daniel, go forward just a few pages to the book of Joel, and let's look in Joel chapter 2. And as you turn to Joel chapter 2, I'll just give you a little context here. God is 
using famine to turn Israel back to himself. Um, as you read through here, he talks about this, this uh, army of locusts. And, and, and this is a passage he says, hey, I'll restore to you the years that the, the locusts have eaten. And, and there, so there's this promise of restoration in the midst of all this, but it's literally locusts. And he's using them to create famine. They come through and they eat everything. There's no food left. Famine. All so that he may turn the hearts of Israel back to himself. Okay? Nothing super special per se. God has done things like this throughout Scripture. And, it, and it's bad. I mean, this is severe. It affects the entire nation. But it isn't the day of the Lord. And whenever you see that day of the Lord... That's the day of judgment. It's a substantial and significant event in history yet to come. Okay, this is not the day of the Lord. And, and he comforts them with that fact. Okay? So, so that's it. That's, that's what's happening. We look at Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 28. And as he gets to the end here, he gives some promise. We have, here's what's happening it's not as bad as it, as it could be. Promise of restoration for them directly. And then he gives some promise for future. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood there before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So there's this promise of the spirit of God being imparted in what part of what results are dreams. Okay, now we have an interpretation. We, this isn't one that we have to look, like, look forward to and interpret. There is an interpretation given us by God himself. So turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Who knows what happens in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. This is a significant event in the church history. Acts chapter 2. Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, right, we see what's happening. The Spirit has descended. Peter is preaching. People are uh, hearing him in their own language. People are hearing them in their own language. And they're witnessing the disciples speaking in tongues. And they're hearing in their own language. That's what's going on. And they're supposing that these people must be intoxicated. There's somehow something's got to be going on with them because it, it appears chaotic. And Peter settles the scene and he, he gives this. He says, beginning in verse 14, For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing this is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then what does he quote? What does he give us for the very passage we just read? 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When do we see the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost? That's when we see it. That's when it happened. That's when it was fulfilled, when God imparts his spirit. As I said, I believe that there are those who are going to have dreams. I think that there's those criteria, those warnings, those words of warning are still applicable. God is not going to change or abrogate his word in any way, shape, or form as a result of that. But it may be some confirmation of what is truth. It may be confirmation of what is, what is before us. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what dream you're going to have. If you have a dream, I would also suggest, just like miracles and those things being the being the confirmation of the truth that was being shared, that they're not the rule. We look at the book of Acts, and it's the acts of the apostles. And why did God give them signs and wonders and the ability to do those things? For the confirmation of the gospel, for the spread. Could it happen to you and I today? Absolutely, it could. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have truth on our side. They didn't have the entirety of the New Testament. They didn't have the witness of the miracles that were already done. I believe it could happen today, but I also believe that it's probably the exception to the rule, just as these dreams are probably the exception. So we need to deal carefully with them. Now, a couple of things to look at here, a couple of connections that I want to make. At Pentecost, Peter quotes from Joel, stating that what they're witnessing, this is the fulfillment of it. Okay? Two things in verse 17 and verse 21. He says, all flesh. This was also in Joel, right? That the Holy Spirit's going to come upon all flesh. This is a promise of redemption, not just to the nation of Israel, but God is going to give his spirit to all flesh. And he says that here in verse 21, again, everyone that shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, not just Israel. We look at this this promise of redemption, of salvation, and it is consistently to all mankind from the beginning to the end. Verse 18, he talks about prophecy, uh, that they, they shall prophesy. What does prophecy mean? The word literally means in both the Old and the New Testament to speak by inspiration. To speak by inspiration. When God lays it on your heart to go and share the gospel with that person, in some respects, that is prophecy. Does that make sense? You're not sharing anything new with that person. There is no new revelation to be written down, but you are speaking as you are inspired to go share the gospel. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 
says, God, who at sundry times and in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. How did God used to speak? By the prophets. They were the people that were the go-between, if you will, between God and man. Moses is a, probably the key example. He said, listen, I'm going to have other prophets, and I'm going to deal with them in that passage of Numbers, and I'll give them dreams and visions. He says, but Moses is my guy, and I'll speak with him face to face. God said, I will have prophets, and I'll speak to the fathers, to those coming before by them. But he continues on in verse 2, says, in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. He says, listen, I've spoken by the prophets in the past, but today I speak by Jesus Christ. The finished revelation, it's done, it's complete. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was uttered. He's what we are looking back upon as that fulfillment, and it's what people have hope in now. God is no longer painting a picture of what is yet to come, of the promise of redemption yet to come. It is fully and completely illustrated and finished in Jesus Christ. There is no further revelation yet to be made as a result. We see it done and finished. Whatever future things needed to be given to us, he's taking the time to give to us. So people may prophesy, speak by inspiration as God leads them to go and speak, but they're not bringing new revelation. And that's the difference. That's the key thing that we have to realize. And it's consistent throughout the Old and the New Testament. I mean, it's consistent. When Moses was speaking, he was speaking by inspiration. This is what God told me to say. At that point, we were recording it because it needed to be recorded. It was scripture. But whatever you and I might have to say, whether God is inspiring us to go share the gospel with that person, whether God is inspiring you and I to take the truth of the word of God and apply it to that person's life or to bring it into our own family and to speak it, doesn't need to be recorded. We're only taking the truth that already exists and speaking that. It's the distinct difference. Revelation is complete and closed. And again, Revelation 22, don't add to it and don't take away from it. Visions and dreams will be confirmatory of revealed truth, not new revelation. To put it as succinctly as I felt like I could, there you have it. One thing to, to be aware of, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, as he gets there, it says, and whosoever shall call upon the name shall, shall, shall be saved. And, but he talks about Jerusalem. He says, there in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. That's, so there's, a, there's, in some respect, there's a dual fulfillment. Okay, you, you have the fulfillment, and I want to make this connection, because to me, the, it illustrated for us the historical narrative and that consistent understanding of the redemptive purpose of God, how that became a tool for good interpretation. Okay, this dual fulfillment, if, you, if you'll allow that term, Joel chapter 2, um, where we have the fulfillment, uh, Israel specific, okay, Jerusalem, where God had 
chosen to dwell with his people and mentioned it here in Joel because uh, it was there Uh, it's there that they're going to, as they seek him, that they're going to return in worship. Okay? Because that's where God has said, this is where you'll worship. Wherever I build my temple, wherever I tell you. And that's, at this point, I mean, we had Shiloh, the tabernacle. Now we have Jerusalem being that point. So when their heart turns back to him, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. They again begin to worship and offer the sacrifices that God had prescribed, illustrative for you and I. So it's fulfilled there. That's, it isn't some future thing where they're looking forward to something in Jerusalem per se. And hopefully that becomes clear as we progress. But we also see this fulfillment, and it's on purpose. And I know it's on purpose because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He didn't say, Peter, quote everything, and Peter just sort of forgot to quote the rest. No, he gave Peter what he needed to say, and it was recorded accurately by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to preserve the meaning that God intended. In Acts chapter 2, it says, and all the call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Has nothing to do with Jerusalem. Has nothing to do with where the Jews worshipped, where they would return when they began to seek him again. Had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with Jesus Christ and his perfect fulfillment of everything that was being uttered. In John chapter 4, turn there with me, John chapter 4, Jesus is conversing with the Samaritan woman, and she perceives through the course of this discussion, she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And she asks him, we the Samaritans worship over here, and they worship on Mount Gerizim. In fact, they still worship on Mount Gerizim today. They are more Jewish than the Jews. They still offer, they still celebrate the Day of Atonement. They, they don't have a temple or a tabernacle or anything up there, but they used to. They have their own scripture, they have their own priesthood, and they still go up there as a group and they offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And the Samaritan woman says, we worship over there. You guys, the Jews, worship over there. And Jesus responds in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Not over there, not over here. It doesn't matter the place, he says. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes and now is, because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He's the completion of it. Now is when the true worshipers will, shall worship the Spirit, the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God wasn't desirous for the sacrifice of the animals. God was desirous that we would, that we would understand the picture being painted. That historical narrative, that redemptive purpose of God, Israel being that ex il il illustrative people and their interactions with God being illus illustrative of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we've spent great length, uh, we're still looking at it in Sunday school now, but we spent time last year studying that thing. And that understanding is an aid to our interpretation. Why would God leave this out? Because as Jesus said clearly here, now is the time when we worship in spirit and truth. Not over there, not over here. We're not worshiping in figure and type. 
We're worshiping in reality. The shed blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is now here. When we worship God, it's direct, it's face-to-face, it's interaction as a, as a result of what Jesus Christ has done. It's not hopeful looking forward to. There's a significant difference in our worship versus the Jewish worship. And I feel bad for those who feel like we need to go back to that because they are missing out on what God has freely offered us in Jesus Christ. And they're taking the words of Jesus himself and saying that is somehow untrue. We worship God in spirit and truth. And God left out that portion from Joel in Acts on purpose. On purpose. So that we might realize now here it is. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not whoever shall worship over here or worship over there. It's done and finished in Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 2 again. Let's skip down to verse 9, excuse me, verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar's had this dream. He calls all these Chaldeans and magicians and astrologers to give him the dream and the interpretation of it. They can't do it. There's this interaction between them. He says, if you can't do it, you're going to be cut in pieces and your house will be made a dunghill. Verse 10, they reply again. They answered before the king and said, this is, there is not a man upon the earth that can show thee the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Nobody asks this kind of thing because nobody can do this. This is impossible. That's what they're saying. And they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you are unreasonable in your request. It's exactly the point God's trying to make. That it is impossible. That there is nothing apart (laughs) without him. There's nothing. All the way back to Daniel 117. I have providentially given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. God does miraculous things, and he uses us, you and I, his people, to do it. In Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus here, uh, one of many instances where he offends his audience, because they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what it implies. They don't like what it means. And so the Pharisees have been offended, and his his disciples are asking him about that. And he's talking about salvation, ultimately. He says in verse 23 that a rich man can hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven But I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There's some discussion among scholars about the eye of the needle and what that means. And maybe it was this really small gate in Jerusalem that nobody knows about. Or I think literally Jesus is saying the eye of a needle and a camel. It's impossible. That's what he is trying to make. Just like the Chaldeans are saying, hey, it's impossible. Nobody could do this. Nobody could do this. And God, Jesus responds to their, to their, 
to the <laughs> verse 25, Matthew 19. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Right? The illustration is this that it is impossible for anyone to save themselves. We cannot do it. The blood of bulls and goats and all those things, the sprinkling to, to the to, of, of the ashes of a heifer to the soothing of our conscience, so to speak, none of that brings about our salvation. Jesus is making the point that it is impossible. And then he says, in response, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's impossible for man to save himself, but God has done everything necessary to provide it for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. It says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed us unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In the next verse, he talks about Jesus being made sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made his righteousness. That exchange may happen. God does miraculous things, saving, and this is just illustrative, saving mankind, and he uses you and I as his ambassadors, as those ministers of reconciliation to bring that to pass, to do those things. He's using Daniel to accomplish this miracle, to bring this to pass. He's using you and I to bring about the miracle of salvation to those that we might share the gospel with. And we do this by the power of the Spirit. This isn't anything that we accomplish on our own. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 12, uh, Jesus speaking says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do, he shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And in the context here, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and, and him being sent. Verse 16, I pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth with whom the world cannot receive. And, and this is really the introduction of Jesus' uh, discourse, if you will, in John's gospel to interaction with the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. In the next couple of chapters, that's what he focuses on primarily. But he says to you and I that in, as a result of the Spirit, the Spirit, uh, he tells us, well, the Spirit will come upon you and you will have power as he's giving the Great Commission. And he tells them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, like we read about in Pentecost, which is exactly when it happened, you'll have power, you have ability, those things to do, these greater things, so to speak, these miracles, these wonders that God will use as a confirmation of the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. God is using those things and using you and I to accomplish them. 
here's the thing. And, and I think it's the caveat that we have to be co- completely cognizant and completely ogn- uh, innocent, uh, uh, honest about, excuse me, is that the miracles, the signs and wonders, anything that we may be privileged to be uh, an instrument of, because it's not you or I doing it, it's the Holy Spirit doing it through us. You can read about that. The Holy Spirit manifests himself in these ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's always confirmatory of the gospel. It's always confirm, confirmatory of the gospel. And I would also suggest, again, that it's not normative. It's not normative. Jesus said, right, he gave the illustration, uh, the, excuse me, the, the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that? And the rich man, uh, Lazarus is this poor man, and he's just there begging for crumbs underneath the rich man's table, and they both died. And the, the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man goes to Hades. He, go, he goes to, I mean, the temporary holy place, and then he goes to hell eventually, and then blow like a fire. That's kind of how that works. Or, or Hades and hell being the same, and then he goes to the lake of fire. One way or the other, it gets worse for him. And there's this chasm between the two. And so he can't get over here, and Lazarus can't get over here. And the rich man tells Abraham, listen, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and bring me some, something to drink. He's like, it's, a, it's against the rules, man. Cannot do it. There's this unbreachable chasm. We can't cross it. And he says, well, send him to my brothers so that they might believe and not end up here with me. And what is Abraham's response? He says, listen, it doesn't matter if they see somebody even come back from the dead. If they won't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe him. Even if somebody comes back from the dead, even if they see this Lazarus who they would recognize brought back to, from the dead, sharing within the gospel, they won't believe the law and the prophets. They won't believe scripture, the truth that is contained herein. They're not going to believe the miracles and the signs and the wonders. Whenever you see the miracles and the signs and the wonders, those things being accomplished, it's, and I'm going to struggle a little bit to phrase this, but it's like somebody's on the fence of faith, and it just pushes them onto the side of faith. If they're already set in their ways and they, uh, they've written it off, it's not going to change their mind. It's not normative because we have the Word of God. This is truth. What sets you free? Signs and miracles and wonders? No. The truth shall set you free. Now, I acknowledge because the scripture says that here it is. It can happen. Believe it. But I don't think that it's normative. I think it's going to be the exception. But here's Daniel. He's going to do the impossible. These Chaldeans are saying this is impossible. Nobody does this. It's a rare thing. It's an impossible thing that the king requires. It says in verse 11, there's none that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. No matter how much faith these guys had, they knew that their pagan gods didn't exist and that their, their knowledge fell short. 
no matter where they were putting their faith, whether it was in science and the discoveries that they had made themselves because the Chaldeans were, they were astrologers, they knew about the stars, all that they're looking for those things, or whether it was in their pagan gods or false gods, they knew that whatever they had was insignificant and was not enough to bring anything about. Their knowledge fell short. They're probably the most honest unbelievers in Scripture. Because they're willing to say, our gods don't dwell with us. They are unconcerned. They're not engaged if they exist at all. Their faith, as misfounded as it may be, tries to refute truth. It tries to refute truth. They're believing something as sincerely as they may believe it that is against truth. We live in a culture, in a world, and in a community, and we're surrounded by people who have this very sincere faith, a very sincere belief, a firm conviction, but it denies truth. And ever increasingly, the conviction of the world around us continues to stand against the established truth of God. In Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 23, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that we are without excuse, because that that because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts was were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man into birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. He refutes truth. And in fact, it doesn't only just refute truth, it stands against it and establishes anything but truth as their object of faith. They profess themselves to be wise and they become fools. I know better than God. What God has said is wrong and what I believe is right. In Genesis chapter 6, and we, we talked about it a little bit this morning, right? That the, the imaginations of man, their heart was only evil continually. And that remains true today. When we think of that, we think of the worst things that are out there. But it doesn't have to be those worst things. Evil, by God's definition, is the little white lie, quote-unquote, that we would tell. It's still just a lie. It's sin of the same degree as the big lie we might tell or any other sin that we may commit. And so for somebody to stand up and say, well, this lifestyle that I am choosing to live Though God may say it's wrong, I know better than God. He somehow made a mistake with me because this is my predilection 
This is where, this is my predisposition. It stands against truth. It establishes its own truth. It says, this is the God that I choose to worship. And in the end, it leaves destruction. It leaves destruction. In Matthew chapter 15, Matthew 15, verses 12 through 14. Jesus is here speaking to the multitude, and he says, Hear and understand, beginning in verse 11, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. And Jesus is talking about what is inside of us, what is in our heart. There are those who are offended here because Jesus, because of the company that he keeps, because of the things that he does, because of the the, the things that his disciples do, whether it's the Sabbath or not the Sabbath, and they're going to eat or they're not going to eat or whatever it may be. And they chalk all these things up to Jesus as him being wrong. And Jesus addresses the heart of where they're coming from. And he says, it isn't what's coming out of us. It isn't the things that we do, so to speak, but it's what's already within us. The abundance, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus would say elsewhere. And so here, it's not what's going into us that's defiling us, that's making us unclean. It's what's already in there that comes out. And it's, it's really not, it's that it's the revelation of our depravity, of our need for Christ, of our need for salvation and redemption. What comes out of the man defiles him. Then his disciples came and said to him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Because that's his audience. Here are the Pharisees, and what are they doing? They make great show of their tithes. They make great show of their fasting. Look how spiritual and religious I am. I know how to serve God. And I realize that it's a different context. It's a religious, it's a spiritual context. But when those people would say, I know better than God, I don't even want to... to keep him in my knowledge, it's saying the same thing. It's saying, I know better than God. He has said, this is sin and this is wrong, but it isn't. I know better than God. It, or it, there's no difference in the Pharisee saying, I am more spiritual because I know what pleases God. It's the same heart. It's revealed in the same action. And they reply that, hey, they are offended because of what you said. Jesus was addressing them specifically and addressing what was coming out of them and their accusations of being defiled by what's going in. Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. Every plant that my father has not planted shall be rooted up. And he, he leaves them, he says, leave them alone, forget about them, don't worry about them. They be blind, leaders of the blind. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee and it's in a religious context, or it's 
uh, atheistic or agnostic at best doesn't matter. The, this, the result is the same. It leads to destruction. The blind, leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. When the guy over here says, listen, I know better than God, he's somehow, this is who I am, this is, and he grabs on to those sinful desires that he has, and he says, because this is what I want, this is what I say is okay and good. And he convinces others of the same, it's the blind leading the blind. God has already said that's sinful. God has already said that is wrong. No matter how much faith, whether it's in their knowledge, whether it's in the science that they practice, whether it's in their own spiritual or pagan worship, these magicians, these astrologers, these Chaldeans knew that there was something greater, knew that there was this separation between them and the reality that they claimed to exist, whether it was a false god or whether it was their knowledge and their their insusceptibility to, to failure, so to speak, as a result of their knowledge. We have a distinct difference in our experience with, with God himself, because the living God is near and he's concerned for you and I. He's concerned for his creation. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we read that God came looking for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That he came looking for them face to face as it was part of their practice to spend time together. There was no separation between him and his creation. He knew it intimately. He was concerned for it. He spent time with Adam and Eve. In Exodus chapter 29... And throughout Scripture, God makes it plain, He makes it known that He is engaged, that He is with His, his people primarily. He, he's engaged in creation, but the reason for His engagement is the redemption of mankind, His care and concern for them. Exodus 29, verse 45 says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Not like these pagan gods, not like these false gods where you, you remember when Jacob takes his family from, from Laban and Laban runs him down and he's like, somebody's stolen my gods. And Rachel had taken them and she'd hidden them. And all he meant by that are these little idols, these little statues. How pitiful of a God is it that somebody could steal him? Yet God says here of himself, I will dwell with the children of Israel. I will dwell with them, and I will be their God. Unmovable, unshakable. Nobody steals them from him. In fact, the only time that anything like that is even approached in Scripture is when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And what happens day after day the idol there in that temple falls down of its own accord in, in this seeming obeisance to 
the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. It ends up being broken pieces as a result. Psalm 113. Uh, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 113, 5 and 6. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heaven and in the earth? John 1, verses 1 through 3, and on into verse 14. The beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it goes on to state that there was nothing made that he didn't make clearly establishing that Jesus Christ was the creator God, the living God, that he made everything by the word of his powers we read in Genesis, and then he took on flesh, as it says, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. When Jesus was born, what did the angels proclaim? Emmanuel, which says, being interpreted is God with us. Nowhere else in any other religious context do we find God dwelling with his people, living with his people, humbling himself that he might even look upon and pay attention to the events that are happening, let alone taking on flesh for the purpose of redeeming his people and shedding his blood on their behalf. There is a distinct difference in what is happening here, and there is an acknowledgement by these wise men in Daniel that there is something different. We serve and we know a God that is near. The letter J. Just kidding. I don't know why that's on the slide. <laughs> Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. <clears throat> Chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles, or in this scenario, what is happening is the temple has been built. David made the preparations for it, but he wasn't able to build it. Solomon, his son, is now building it as God had promised. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, which he does in chapter 6, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter to the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and he spent time with them directly. And as a result of their sin, they were separated from him. God illustrating that he wanted to spend time and fellowship with his creation, with mankind, establishes a place in Israel, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, at the temple, that he would dwell with his people. And when they had offered the appropriate sacrifices, when they had prayed, his spirit, his presence descended like a cloud, and the people worshiped. 
In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, this is the new heaven and the new earth. This is the, the culmination of all of history, so to speak. I saw a new heaven and a new earth where the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the original intent. Don't misunderstand, God was not lacking. He was not somehow needing fellowship or, or interaction with mankind. But because of who he is, it was part of what he wanted. And he created everything in respect so that he may, so that we may rather, interact with him directly. And we see that fall as a result of sin. And we see the restoration of that relationship through everything that God did, taking on flesh on our behalf and being that substitute, that propitiation. And in the end, when God consumes the existing heaven and earth with fire and fervent heat and all of those things and recreates a new heaven, a new earth, and this new Jerusalem comes down, he says, I will dwell with my people. The original intent is restored, this intimate relationship. When Jesus says, listen, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. We have the restoration of the original intent of the relationship between God and man. And we find that it's an intimate relationship offered by Jesus Christ himself and through his sacrifice. We receive it by faith in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And I want you to notice in, in part the, the universal, universalness of the offer that is here, that is made here says that he came into his own and his own received him not. Speaking of the nation of Israel, the, his chosen people, the people that he chose to use to illustrate this redemptive purpose, his redemptive desire, he came to them and they didn't receive him. You can write down Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. We are restored to this relationship with our creator by faith. In Romans chapter 10, find it fairly simply stated, Romans 10 verse 9. We shall confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Sometimes the presentation of things isn't always as joyous as it could be. 
we have this distinct difference. We have a God who is personally engaged, who says, listen, when you have trouble, come directly to the throne of mercy and receive grace in time of trouble. We have this direct interaction. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here are these Chaldeans and these wise men and all of these magicians and astrologers, and they're doing everything that they can to try and save face. And Nebuchadnezzar knows it. He says, you're just trying to buy time. And what are you trying to buy time to do? So that you can deceive me. You can throw out these things that, that are untruths. You and I should be like Paul, not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because this is the promise of the restored relationship with our creator. Because it stands as the, as it stands as the report of history from Genesis to Revelation. It stands as the desire of our creator to be in relationship with him and it occurs to me that there is sometimes this reservation to say well boy their life sure seems to be put together or they seem to be pretty happy where they're at i don't want to spoil things and we phrase it that way but ultimately what it is or maybe perhaps it's just me is an ashamedness of what we really have. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. It is the promise of a right relationship, of a restored fellowship with our creator for all of eternity. And nowhere else is it offered. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We serve him. He desires to fellowship with us. He offers it, and by extension, throughout Scripture, has illustrated the fact that he wants to be in that relationship with us. And he's given you and I the distinct honor as his children to be those ambassadors, to be those who would take that that message to the world around us. And probably as important, he gives us the distinct honor to be in that relationship with him. Unconditionally. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and the the forgiveness that we receive from you. And God, we rejoice that we have your word and that we have the privilege of being your people by faith, not of works, not of anything that we could bring or add or do. And Lord, I pray that we might be those who would rejoice, who would realize the privilege that we 
have a right relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that we get to be instruments of the miraculous, doing those things that are impossible with men, but Lord, being the instruments of truth and of your love to those that are around us. God, as we have opportunity to praise you and to sing and to worship for who you are and what you've done, God, I pray that it would be the offering of our lips. Lord, that it be a heartfelt rejoicing. We praise you now and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.